Welcome back to the Core Knowledge Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Nick Sestari, and on today's show, we will continue our quest to bring awareness to the heat beneath our feet in order to power the future. And today's episode, I'm extremely excited to be bringing to you. Uh, we have a special guest, uh, Matt Uddenberg, who's the Vice President of Operations at Alter Rock Energy. So really excited to be able to highlight the work they're doing and just hear from him on some more info on geothermal and specific the techo economic models that we build. And so without further ado, I will hand it over to him to give a brief overview of himself and his background and, and how he ended up here at Alter Rock Energy today. Uh, thanks for that introduction. Um, yeah, so once again, my name is Matt Uddenberg. Uh, been in the geothermal industry for about 13, 14 years or so. Um, I got my start as a geologist, uh, so I have an undergrad degree in geology. And from there, I actually, my first job was as a mud logger, believe it or not. Um, I was working down in Bakersfield, in Elk Hills. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then uh, later, after that, I actually ended up working for um, COZO, so Thermosource. So I did some work in COZO and Dixie Valley in Nevada. And those are both geothermal plants. And that's kind of where I got my introduction to geothermal. Um, found it really fascinating and uh, decided to go to grad school at the University of Texas. Uh, I joined the um, Earth and Energy Resources um, degree at U University of Texas. And I studied both business and petroleum engine engineering there. Um, during my time there, I worked at the Bureau of Economic Geology, um, and I was part of a group that was looking for geothermal prospects around the state and then figuring out ways to analyze the viability of develop, developing those resources. So we did a lot of good work there. Um, so we were actually working with SMU. I don't know if anyone's familiar, but if you've seen those heat gradient maps and heat flow maps, we were helping them um, get assemble that data and make those maps. Um, after that, I actually was an intern for ORMAT, uh, during that time. And I worked at the Mount Spur project up in Alaska, um, doing some core drilling up there. And then after, after graduating, I ended up working for Alterock and I was working on the stimulation at Newberry. Um, and so from there, uh, we did multiple stimulations at Newberry, um, developing the technology, iterating on our successes, and then we applied that to different fields, um, mostly in North America, but then also throughout the world. Um, I, I was there at, at Alterog for about five years or so. Um, then I ended up consulting for a little while, uh, worked on various different projects, um, mostly throughout the United States, and now I'm back with Alterog, um, doing our new initiatives um, for stimulation. Awesome. That's great. Uh, that's an awesome, an awesome journey. So I kind of bounced around got to experience a, a lot of things. Um, you know, before we move to Alter Rock in specific, I'd, I'd love to just for those listening and maybe those that are, you know, in geology or just in oil and gas or energy space and have, have heard about geothermal lately, or just have been kind of curious what exactly it is, you know, for you personally, what, what kind of was the the point that intrigued you or, or caught you into, you know, the interest that led further pursuit of geothermal um, for yourself personally in, in your career? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in the background, I, I love geology. I actually started as a physics major and then took a geology class and um, just uh, really enjoyed it um, and found myself wanting to do that more. Uh, so I kind of went into geology and kind of more on the physics side. And there was all these amazing tools you can use to, you know, see what's going on underneath the earth, you know, gravitometers and uh, MT and all, all, the, all these different tools uh, that I found pretty interesting. So that's kind of what drew me in. Um, and yeah, I, I think I was thinking of going in oil and gas, but part of me always knew that I wanted to do something, uh, you know, a little different. I do have like an environmental, I guess, sensibility. And so uh, when I encountered geothermal, I, it really, I guess, resonated with me. Um, and the other thing that I would say is I was out in Kozo and I got to have some experiences that I now know are fairly rare. So I was on exploration wells at Kozo. Okay. And we were drilling into, you know, the flanks of these volcanoes or volcanic systems. It's a large volcanic system, but there's many um, rhyolitic domes. And so okay. we're drilling into some of those systems. And, um, you know, some of these wells, they're 10 megawatt wells. And when wow. you go to flow them, I mean, it sounds like a 747 taking off. It's oh, and, cow. <laughs> and the, the ground rumbles. That's <laughs> um, it, amazing. It's really, it's pretty impressive, honestly. Um, and when you're there, it's just hard not to be kind of odd by the power of these um, these systems. And so I, I think uh, it was, you know, geothermal was always kind of, it was always there for me to resonate with because it, you know, checks off a lot of my, uh, I guess, interests. But when I was there, actually able to witness a flowing well, it really just kind of came all together, and uh, I was kind of hooked from there. So yeah, since then, since I, I guess I've seen that first well flow, I was, uh, I've been pushing forward ever since. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm sure I'm, that that would definitely make you, you know, that would definitely hook me in getting to see something like that. I know being in the in the field just in general or seeing things live in action is, is definitely a unique experience in whatever field you're in. So that's that's an awesome that sounds awesome. And I, I would love to see something like that someday, especially in the geothermal space. Um, yeah. And for those who don't know, um, so Kozo, I'm sure a lot of people do not know this. Kozo is located um, off of 395 in Southeast California. Um, actually just south of Mount Whitney, but on, okay. not in the Sierras, but in the, um, the white mountain ranges. Well, okay. it's not white mountain, but it's, um, just below there. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That was going to be my next question was where exactly I was going <laughs> to ask if that was here or if that was somewhere, somewhere overseas. Yeah, no, it's, um, uh, California. Yeah. California is also for people who know California is the largest producer of geothermal energy, um, in a region, probably in the world uh, and definitely in the United States. Yeah, it's pretty incredible that it's right here, kind of under our noses. But you know, I don't, I don't feel like it. It is as known as, as maybe it it should be or or could be in terms of just knowledge and awareness to the general, you know, public or energy community. It seems it seems almost like it's its own niche or its own little bubble. Uh, unless you know about it, you don't hear about it, kind of thing. Definitely, I um, a great example of that. I just do non sequitur, or maybe not non sequitur. But a great example of that is um, the geysers just yeah. north of San Francisco, which I'm sure you're aware. Um, 
that's been operating since the 1960s. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, and the max production was over a gigawatt of power. Uh, you know, and at one time it was supplying nearly 20% of all the electricity needs of the Bay Area, you know, for many years. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think that most people know any of that. Um, not to mention that it's probably, I mean, it is the largest geothermal field in the world um, that's operating. Yeah, no, I think that it's when, when you really dig into it and, and see the, the facts and the stats and just the size and the amount of energy it's produced, it's pretty incredible that that was here, you know, in North America, but also just the, the scale of it is incredible. And also, you know, I guess before we leave that topic, I would just grab your opinion on that with it's been producing obviously 60 years plus and you know, I guess my curiosity, or at least want to put this out there for the listeners is, you know, do you think there is potential there that goes beyond just the shallow conventional systems? Um, you know, I, I know I've seen some talk about that or some initiatives being done that that would be a great test site to do some of these deeper or, you know, even EGS type uh, reservoir developments. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely potential there. Um I mean, what's happening right now is, you know, they it's a steam-dominated reservoir. Yeah. And so um, there's dewatering going on. There's lots of fractures. Um, you're in a unique situation where it's volcanic and it's, you know, tectonically active. And you just have all the right kind of scenarios to create this perfect uh, large steam reservoir. But over the years, you know, they've mined a lot of the steam out. And so they've had to replenish the steam um, by basically pumping city water Mm, into the base okay. of the reservoir and just allowing boiling at the base of the reservoir. Um, but uh, underneath the reservoir, those rocks are still incredibly hot. So there's still a significant resource at the geysers. Um, however, the, the reservoir that they have been mining is, you know, somewhat depleted. It still obviously is producing a, a lot of power, but it, it has been depleted to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, and I mean, I guess, as we'll probably touch on later in, in terms of the finance modeling, I think one big thing about there that, you know, lends itself maybe to a good test site for that kind of stuff is just the infrastructure is already uh, set up in terms of surface facilities and, and you know, actual power that can be taken somewhere. And, and so I think that that eliminates a lot of the upfront costs. I mean, obviously you have to drill new wells, which accounts for a lot of the cost, but um you know, we'll touch on, I'm sure we'll touch on that later, but, you know, I think that's something, I don't know if you agree that there's, there's probably areas that we can at least get some, you know, as I'll call them, you know, just initial successes to prove up some of these new technologies in geothermal where there's already existing infrastructure. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the initial test cases of some of this technology can um, more easily be done in places like the geysers or where there's existing power, high temperature, high pressure um, steam power plants already. So, and there's a lot of locations like that. I mean, we're talking New Zealand, Indonesia, Africa, yeah. uh, all over the world. Yeah, which is also something I, I think is is what I'm hoping to get on this show is just that awareness to people that this is this is truly a global energy source and not just, you know, very localized. I just feel like that's that's kind of when you first hear about, at least for myself, when I first started looking into it, it, it seemed very localized and all the projections say that it's going to stay flat. And there was just, there wasn't as much of the energy around it that I've seen in the last, you know, 
kind of two to five years of stuff you read where people actually believe that it, you know, we can unlock it globally, not just in local shallow hot areas that have geysers or, or, you know, volcanic activity, which is exciting. Yeah. I mean, so at least in the U S we're definitely going to need to do some more innovative things. Um, I will say, however, that, you know, in places like Indonesia, Philippines or whatnot, there are still a lot of amazing conventional resources that can be developed. Yeah. Um, so there's, there are plenty of those, uh, <laughs> those resources still out there. Um, I, I think the biggest issue there really, it, it comes down to risk. So, um, there is, these projects still are risky and some of the new technologies, um, being developed such as EGS, um, mainly here in the United States, uh, really reduces that risk. And so it makes a lot of these projects more possible. Yeah. And I guess since we've, we've both used the term already, but for those listening that may not know the EGS is enhanced geothermal systems. So, Oh yeah. Let me, uh, uh, you're, yeah, you're, you can expound on that cause you're, you're, I'll let the, uh, the expert expound, but yeah, that's, that's what we're referring to as we're saying EGS. You're yeah, absolutely right. We need some context here. So, um, EGS is basically uh, engineered or enhanced geothermal systems. And what that means is that you either utilize um, existing natural fractures in the subsurface or you create um, fractures in the subsurface through uh, open mode fracturing, uh, you know, tensile failure and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's akin to, you know, uh, the experiments that were done in oil and gas, you know, back in the 50s and 60s with stimulations and fracking. So uh, they explored these different, uh, I guess, options, right? So there's um, what is called hydro shearing. Um, and hydro shearing is basically uh, you bring the pressure just above uh, a point where the critically stressed fractures, so fractures that are about to slip but just need a little push, uh, you bring it to the pressure where they will slip. Um, and when these fractures slip, they cause, um, you cause enhanced permeability because there's disparities along the fractures which self-prop the fractures open. Um, and, you know, it, it works differently in all different types of geology, but in some cases you can get really significant results doing that. Um, the other method, obviously, is what most people know of fracking, which is um, open-mode fracturing. Um, and this is just where the rock fails in tension. Um, and then you have situations where you have a combination of both, um, which I think has also been explored in oil and gas. And it's maybe pe more people are coming around to this kind of idea uh, yeah. now. But um, EGS is using those methodologies to essentially create a reservoir at depth. So what you would do is you drill a well, um, you create or enhance the permeability at depth, and then you connect to that reservoir permeability structures through another well, and you cycle the water through like a radiator, and you pull out the heat, you mine the heat that way, through a totally engineered system. Yeah, no, and that's, and that's, it's a super fascinating idea of, of creating our, our own reservoirs, you know, in basically that idea that there is hot rock at certain depths everywhere in the globe. So creating your own, you know, mini reservoir by just having fluids pumped down to basically create permeability or enhance the permeability that's already there or also creating it, which I think is, is super fascinating. Um, 
you know, and, and I think that, that, you know, that topic I think is, is one that will be very prevalent here in the next five to 10 years, just in a lot of the new uh, geothermal companies that are out there. Um, just because it is a, I think it's a, a great model. Um, obviously some of that, there's some expense, some of those can be expensive depending on the depth that you have to go to, um, which is something that with these technology advances, hopefully will, will help us get down that cost curve. Um, but I think on that note of the EGS, uh, I wanted to touch back on, you know, Alter Rock and you had mentioned new initiatives. And so one of the ones that I had heard you mention before, but is also one that I've read about that you guys are still looking at is the Newberry um, project, which is, you know, what it, you guys are calling super hot rock extraction. And so I just wanted to, um, you know, ask you and, and kind of get your, your summary or just kind of an overview of what Alter Rock is, is doing in, in that area. Yeah. Um, so I think this, in order to understand um, what we've done in the past and why we're pivoting the way we are, I just need to provide some context here. Um, so back in the early 2000s, um, there was an initiative uh, to get EGS up and going. Uh, this was largely due to the MIT publication, The Future of Geothermal Energy, yeah. that talked about EGS. Um, and I, I, if anyone out here listening to this hasn't read that document, um, you don't have to read the whole thing. It's pretty large, but there are summary documents um, or you can peruse through it. it. It's very instructive and it will give you most of the background you need to kind of understand what everyone is doing. This is, I guess, the starting point um, for a lot of companies, uh, including Alterock. And one of the founders of Alterock, uh, Susan Petty, um, the principal founder, really, she was uh, heavily involved in that publication as well. So... Um, at the time, when they were exploring this EGS options, they were looking at uh, resources that are, you know, 200 to 300 C, and you would produce pressurized water. Um, the economics of that were, you could probably get down to, on the order of like 60 to 70 cents in the low end, and then, you know, in the 10 or greater cents in the high end. Um and that's about what you could do. And at the time, that made sense economically to pursue because natural gas was very expensive. <laughs> People don't remember. Yeah. It was <laughs> $8 an MMBTU. So um, it was cost competitive at the time to pursue that option. Um, what happened in EGS, and this, this is what I believe, um, is that it lost the narrative. So a lot of projects moved forward and they had successes. So we had ORMAT, even Alterock at Newberry, we, we had a successful stimulation. Um, however, the economic targets that were um, aimed for suddenly became uh, out of touch with the, uh, the new economic conditions of $2 MMBTU gas. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of these projects foundered based off the fact that they couldn't raise new funds to keep the, these projects rolling. Um, and that and that's kind of, so when people look at EGS and they say, hey, you know, we tried it and it didn't work, that's not actually the real story. So there is a narrative out there uh, for people who are not aware that we tried EGS uh, 10 years ago and it's, it hasn't worked. Um, and that, that's an incorrect 
I guess, assessment of what actually happened. It was more along the lines of we had technologies, we had some successes, but they didn't provide a path, pathway to um, compete uh, in the economic context that we found ourselves, which were, was completely different from where we started. Yeah. Uh, so looking at that, uh, you know, we've been developing ways or devising ways to, you know, push the cost down. This is what all of us in the renewable energy business are trying to do, trying to put up the cost, push down the cost and get competitive. Uh, in our exploration of that, what we found was you can, the best way to drive down the cost is just to go for hotter resources. Mm-hmm. So we asked ourselves, you know, how would we go about this? Um, what kind of resources should we target? Um, what are the technologies that are needed? Uh, and in this exploration, we came up with uh, a concept called super hot rock. So that is currently what we're pursuing. We've kind of, we published things on and off about it for the past few years or so. And we are actively developing the technologies needed to develop these resources and push this concept forward. So essentially what it is, is targeting resources that are above 375C and have greater than 22 megapascals in the reservoir. So what that means is there's super critical water. Yeah, I was going to say we're approaching super critical resources at that point. Right. So there's super critical water in the in the resource itself however we we don't want to call this supercritical resources because at the at this time we're not sure whether we will produce super super critical water at the surface Mm, yeah and the other part of it is you know you're inject you're going to be injecting water into the system so there will be liquid water and there are going to be complex dynamics that are happening in the reservoir and so i think saying supercritical resources would not fully capture the complexities and possibilities of these kind of resources. So we've gone with super hot rock because it's more encompassing of all the things that you can do. So, you know, if we have really deep wells, for example, we might explore doing uh, closed loop systems. But for now, uh, in, the, in the early days in the more shallow systems, we will largely be doing EGS or pursuing EGS at these steps. So, yeah, that's, that's great. So that, I mean, it's a great summary of, uh, you know, I think that's a huge step forward and probably a lot of the future of, of geothermal, not only that, but it's one area that will, will open up a huge resource in my opinion. Yeah. And let me just, I want to hit some highlight points here of, um, why it is different and why it has, uh, why it will push the cost down. Let's put it that way. Um, okay. So here are the main points to think about. So the, fir- so the first point is um, supercritical water, right? It, it has a specific enthalpy of 2,000 kilojoules per kilogram or greater. So that's, that's the starting point for supercritical is 2,000 kilojoules per kilogram or, or greater. Um, when you're looking at pressurized water, for example, which you know some of these newer EGS projects are pursuing, let's say... Uh, at 200 C and you produce 150 C water or something like that. You're talking more along the lines of, you know, 800 kilojoules per kilogram or thereabouts. Um, So it's a significant increase in the amount of energy uh, per kilogram of fluid that you're sending through the system. Yeah. The other thing is uh, supercritical water itself has one tenth of viscosity of liquid water. Mm, Okay. So what that means is you can get the same amount of flow 
through your system with fractures of half the aperture. Yeah. Um, so you your stimulations will be more efficient, basically, and you're probably better able to utilize the natural fracture networks. So that's that's another uh, reason why it's beneficial. Um, then secondarily, when you produce these fluids, you are likely producing high enthalpy fluids, um, either supercritical water or steam. Um, and what that enables is uh, a drastic in- increase in efficiency on your power plant side. Yeah. So a binary turbine, and let me back this up, is geothermal is, uh, is a two it's a two-tiered uh, resource, basically. So there are things called binary turbines, which are low enthalpy resources. And what they do is they use pressurized water to heat a refrigerant, which has a lower boiling point. Uh, and then that re- vaporized refrigerant goes into a turbine and powers uh, the generator for electricity. Um, in the higher enthalpy systems, what you do is you just produce steam or you flash steam at the surface and you use a steam turbine to produce electricity. The binary turbines, um, you're looking at around, you know, 7 to 12% uh, first law thermal efficiency. Um, and the steam turbines, you're looking at somewhere on the order of 14 to 25% uh, efficiency. Yeah, which for those listening, you know, where, where does that place itself in, in relation to, you know, current or not, you know, other forms of, you know, turbines? Because I know I've seen stuff where, you know, some of the natural gas or other ones are operating at, you know, 40% or, or greater to some degree, not all of them. Oh, yeah, no. So that is correct. And, you know, it's an ongoing um, it's an ongoing research problem, figuring out whether we can utilize these um, super hot resources to get better efficiencies. Yeah. I, I, I'm basically saying that current steam turbines, right, you're somewhere in that range. Yeah, exactly. Which I'm, I was just wanted to touch on that, so people knew that you know what you're talking about with the super hot rock will hopefully improve that and bring it up to what you know is more known or more seen in some other forms of you know power production. Right. Exactly. It, but but the thing is, even if let's say even if we can't improve upon twenty twenty five percent, we are still double or more than double um, binary turbine efficiency. Yeah. Correct. So when you look at the fact that you're producing two and a half times more energy or more um, per kilogram of fluid flow, and you're more than double the efficiency, you quickly begin to realize that you can produce much more power from one of these wells. It's on the order of, you know, around five or more times the amount of energy. And, and so that opens up a lot of possibilities because what you, if you just, you know, simple, <laughs> uh, simple reasoning here um, basically states, uh, if it were the same price as, let, let's say, conventional geothermal, the wells would have to be five times as expensive. Well, yeah. That's probably not going to happen. Um, you know, geothermal wells are typically, well, it depends on the depth, but, you know, let's say... You, you're drilling around 10,000 feet or so, you know, you're around $10 million of thereabouts. Yeah. Um, these wells are going maybe a kilometer, like at least in Newberry, for example, maybe you go, um, you're at 
15,000 feet or thereabouts to get to SHR. Okay. Um, you can get there with conventional drilling techniques. Um, it is unlikely that it will cost $50 million. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. That would be kind of, <laughs> that would be a little bit right. insane. If it that would be a little, like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, to go an extra kilometer, it doesn't really make sense why it would increase that much. So what you begin to realize is yes, the, the cost situation, um, the cost can be driven down pretty drastically uh, using these uh, advantages of these resources. So there's a, the, the prize is much bigger. Yeah. Especially what it is. Absolutely. So what's holding it back? And um, I guess we can talk about that. That's what Alterac is focused on right now is yeah, I was gonna touch one of on the specific it. challenges. So I'll go over the, what the challenges are to developing these resources now. In the development of super hot rock, there are... Uh, specific challenges that we need to overcome. Uh, those challenges are drilling, well completion, reservoir creation, and power plants. Um, in terms of drilling, we can get to shallow resources, uh, let's say within four to five kilometers um, with conventional drilling technologies. And these resources exist around the world. They're just um, fairly rare. However, uh, in California, there is uh, the geysers, the Salton Sea, um, and, and some resources, maybe even near Kozo, which you could develop. Uh, Alterac has Newberry Caldera, which is one of the hotter resources in North America. And we can get to SHR resources within about four to five kilometers. So in those resources, um, we can use conventional drilling technologies. But um, as you go deeper, you might need to use some more innovative techniques. Um, but however, we can get started. So that challenge is... Um, is, is not too much of a problem at the time. In terms of power plants, um, the, the coal industry has developed supercritical turbines. Um, high pressure and temperature steam turbines for geothermal exist all around the world uh, in places like such the geysers and New Zealand and Indonesia. And so the challenges there are, can be overcome. Um, and just going into a little more detail, um, one of the bigger challenges is treating the steam. So there might be something, uh, constituents within the steam that make putting it through a turbine difficult. However, there are scrubbing processes, basically spraying the steam with water, uh, which allow you to take all that stuff out. And these techniques are well understood and have been developed all around the world and, de and deployed around the world. Um, so those challenges are largely solved, uh, at least for these initial SHR resources. However, uh, well completion and reservoir creation are still challenges which need innovation. Um, there actually have been around 27 wells which have drilled into uh, SHR resources in the past. Okay. Uh, I believe one of the oldest is in Japan, um, which was drilled in the 80s or 90s. I forget exactly <laughs> which decade, okay. but a, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and Subsequently, the more uh, recent SHR wells, which were more deliberative, let's say, uh, were in Italy uh, for the de-scramble project, um, and then in Iceland for what is called uh, Iceland Deep Drilling Project, IDDP. Okay. Um, the Iceland project has drilled two wells, and they're getting ready to drill a third. Um, both wells went to SHR resources, and one of the wells actually hit a natural supercritical um, resource. 
Mm, wow. uh, however, when they when they hit that resource, um, it caused a lot of damage to their casing. Mm-hmm. So they had yeah. a, a large thermal shock, which um, they were unable to withstand, given the casing that they had. And so what what this um, shows is that we need to come up with we need to design and model uh, casing systems that are able to withstand um, large thermal cycling or thermal shock. Um, and there are people who have been trying to tackle this. There's various ways of doing it. Um, one of the more interesting ways, I think, is um, looking at expandable couplings. And so there's actually a team in Iceland that are developing these systems, and they actually have prototyped um, and made um you know, tens or you know, maybe hundreds of these couplings to be put into a well. Um, and basically, it takes up the thermal expansion through an expansion joint um, connecting the two casing. Okay, wow. Yeah, so th- there are things that are being done um, to overcome some of the challenges of well completion. And I think a lot of that stuff is, you know, cl- uh, ready for prime time. So pretty close to uh, being able to be deployed. Um, so while there are challenges, I think those can be overcome fairly quickly. Uh, I think the biggest challenge really is um, creating or enhancing a reservoir at depth. So when you get down to these depths, um, it becomes exceedingly hard to find natural fractures. right? Um, so you can develop a natural system. You can try to target a, a fracture in, at depth. But with this heat, it's very hard to image um, with any kind of yeah. resolution. Uh, the natural fracture network. Um, so it, it becomes a risky proposition for trying to uh, look for these natural um, systems at, at these depths and temperatures. Most likely what you're going to need to do is either enhance the existing permeability that exists downhole or create your own permeability. So you're going to need some sort of EGS. Um, and in, in that case, the, the challenges are somewhat significant, and that is where Alterock has been focused, at least for the past two, three years or so. Okay. So developing the technologies needed to um, do EGS at depth. Uh, and, th- and that's kind of our path forward. So we, we, we looked at the set of challenges, and we are tackling what we think are the, is the most difficult challenge. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I'd seen... You know, I I read on their page and then seen, you know, neighbors announced and then also saw one of the ones you're working with in terms of drilling side was Quay's, um, you know, energy in terms of helping to solve that. You know, I guess the the drilling when you get to certain depths, but also in certain rock types to make things more efficient on the drilling side of things. Um, so it's it's cool to see the, you know, technology and the problem solving that, you know, I think, in my opinion, is is very similar you know, in some senses to oil and gas, just in terms of solving problems, how do you make a, you know, for instance, how did we get to a place where we can drill three mile laterals in, you know, shales? No one thought that was possible 10 years ago. So I I think it's, it's cool to hear about the efforts going on. And like you said, that they're about ready for prime time, because I think some of these small successes are just getting the word out and shedding light is that I think there are advances being made. and, And I think we are on the cusp of a big breakthrough in in terms of geothermal in the, in the resources so that's that's exciting to to hear i'll, um, I'll give you a great example of that actually because uh, i'm glad that you put said that and so clearly uh, one of the one ex- good example that highlights this idea that a lot of this stuff exists but in the darkness 
And uh, just uh, a lot of the work we have to do is just shed light on the, the work that people have already done. Um, yeah. So, for example, um, Baker Hughes was involved in the IDD, IDDTP project. Sorry. Wow. Um, and they developed a um, directional drilling system for that project, which was deployed uh, in 400 degrees C rock. Well, that, that's pretty that's pretty crazy right. because I feel like if you just were not you know not aware of things happening, that you would just think that you know from the narrative you hear is that oh my gosh, there's no tools or or systems of it. Which I mean, there still is need for advancement, but it's crazy that either it's it's not necessarily you know I think collaboration isn't the the right word. Like that still obviously collaboration needs to keep happening, but I think it is truly just the the sharing of the successes and the knowledge that it, you know, doesn't get as much press as maybe it, it should when things like that, you know, happen. Yeah. I mean, uh, so there's definitely more work that needs to be done. And uh, the deployment of the system, I think was over smaller intervals, but they were, they did get success um, from drilling at these depths and temperatures. And uh, I, I believe the system is rated for, let's say, so 300 C they use metal on metal motors, um, metal, metal seals, and things of that nature. They have a cooling system for their electronics. And then uh, on top of that, if you use, so this is another concept that um, is interesting. I, I don't think a lot, of, a lot of people realize this, but you can use your mud system to cool the yeah. rock immediately around the well so that the temperature that your tools see is going to be lower than what the reservoir temperature is. So as long as you have uh, decent circulation, you can depress the temperature. Um, to you know, a lower degree, and allow you to use some of these tools at at higher temperatures. Um, yeah, no, that's an, it's you know I think, and also just like the one other correlation that I couldn't help but hear when you were talking about the expandable couplings. You know, I think it's crazy to to hear the the things that are you know so closely related to you know oil and gas that there's been expandable liners and expandable tubing and casing that you know that people have been experimenting with and, and developing and oil and gas space for various purposes, you know, and so it's, it's, I think that's also part of the hope here is engaging the energy community that's out there to say, you know, this, this energy source, you know, geothermal in specific has a lot of need for the skill sets that exist in oil and gas. And I think that, that it will be key in, in kind of pushing some of these advances is bringing that over and cross, cross developing, just now focusing on heat instead of you know, oil and gas. Definitely. And I would say there are a lot of um, oil and gas firms which are getting involved. And I, I, we have done work with Baker Hughes specifically, yeah. and I know that they're fairly heavily involved with geothermal and have a lot of uh, stuff in the works, um, both on the reservoir engineering side and, and tools. So a lot of that work's being done. Uh, there are, you know, high temperature packers that are being developed at not 400c but you know 300c yeah thereabouts um and so yeah these things are progressing and i think they're progressing faster than most in the oil and gas community uh realize but you know uh we here in the geothermal community um are are seeing a lot faster progress than we have in the past yeah that's one thing that i think um you know I want to after we'll touch on this briefly, and then I want to jump into a little bit on the you know uh, techno economic modeling side of things. But I you know I guess the 
like you just said, the kind of the last few years, it's been a increasing interest ramp up and just increasing investment of time and resources into trying to solve these problems inside of the geothermal space. Uh, but, you know, it still seems interesting to me that when you see all of the energy forecasts or the outlooks for the next 10, even long-term, you know, that it, it holds geothermal flat, if not just less, you know, that you don't see it represented in the greater scheme of, you know, people's minds. And so I guess just your opinion or your ideas on, on why you may think that there, we're not seeing a greater emphasis on like the urgency of, you know, Hey, this, we need to solve these things now so that in 20 years we can be at a place where geothermal can account for that net increase in energy demand, you know, from a clean energy source. Yeah. You know, this is a great question. Um, I've thought about this a lot. Uh, a lot of the work I've been doing lately is trying to communicate this concept to people so that they can understand the vision. Uh, because for me, the vision is pretty clear, but for, for whatever reason, it's, it isn't resonating with the greater public. And I think it does need to. So let me um, try to offer an explanation of why it hasn't, I guess, and then why I think it will in the future. So I think the reason why geothermal hasn't resonated at, with the general public as a potential source, energy source going forward, um, is the fact that you, one, the resource is uh, limited currently. So there's about 15.5 gigawatts installed around the world at, at this point in time. I think there's something over 600 gigawatts of solar uh, okay. installed at the moment. Um, however, solar has a capacity factor, and this is something I guess we can get into later, uh, yeah. 25% while geothermal has you know, 95%. So it's actually, uh, geothermal produces one-tenth the power of the solar industry, which isn't terrible, but it's, you know, it's not as big as the solar industry. Yeah. Um, so I think... Geothermal gets overshadowed there. Uh, in, in addition, I think there were promises that were made, you know, during the early 2000s with geothermal that didn't come to fruition. And, and that has to do with what we talked about earlier, which is um, changing economic conditions and having the wrong target. And as you know, working in the oil and gas industry, when you're doing these projects, at least in the subsurface, you're talking um, multiple year long pathways for development. Yeah. So if, if your target is wrong and then midway your entire economic uh, context changes, um, it can really throw a project off. Um, and that does happen in oil and gas, right? Um, yeah, it sours the taste in the, in the mouth of you know, management or whoever, whoever that is that if one project kind of went south or was wrongly forecasted. Correct, right. Uh, so I think between those two things, you kind of have... Um, this background of, you know, geothermal is interesting, but it doesn't really work, right? I think that's kind of the feeling that people have. Or, or they just haven't heard of it. And maybe why they haven't heard of it is because the, the gatekeepers to that kind of information have that opinion. Um, so that's my theory about why it's not more widely known about. Um, okay, so I don't think that this will continue to be the case. Um, and the reason why is I think that we have uh, in a concept here, uh, especially in SHR, but also some of the other EGS uh, projects like what Sage Geothermal, mm -hmm. uh, Sage yeah. Geosystems and other companies are doing that are going to drop the cost and risk of these um, 
these projects and make it affordable to do. And once you get more moment, momentum there uh, and more visibility, I think that that narrative will change. Um, and then th there's another point I want to make, though, which is um, when you look at geothermal, so it has some specific characteristics that make it better than many other uh, renewable energy resources. So let's just talk about that real quick. Yeah. And why I think once this gets highlighted, it will help change the narrative. So geothermal uh, produces power all the time. It's a baseload energy source. Um, what this means, most importantly, is that it's predictable. So you can turn it on and off if need be. Um, and it runs all the time, most of the time. So if you're a utility, for example, um, you can count on geothermal uh, to produce a specific amount of power at a specific time. Yeah. Uh, this allows you to plan um, for your demand load because you kind of have a sense of what your demand is going to be. Um, and it takes a lot of variability out of the system. With solar and wind, obviously, there is variability, lots of variability, because there are clouds in the sky, the wind doesn't always blow, uh, there's nighttime, <laughs> there's things <laughs> yeah. of that nature. I guess that's more predictable, but yeah, you have a lot of variability in the system. And this variability has a cost that I don't think is fully realized at this moment in time. And, and the reason why it hasn't been up to this point is that um, wind and solar were such a small part of the energy mix that these shortfalls or the variability could be made up um, simply through the network effects of the uh, the grid system. So they could yeah. trade across you know different municipalities and things like that. As you get more penetration, um, this variability becomes a bigger problem. And really the only way to solve it um, is energy storage systems. So I'll, I'll give you a context for a problem because I'm, I'm sure people haven't really thought about it in this way. But for example, if I have a giant solar field in Nevada um, and there's a transmission line running through the desert going through there and it's going towards California, let's say, um, what happens is that the solar has to have, it is transmission constraint, okay? So only a certain amount of power can run through that transmission line. And if you build, let's say, a gigawatt solar power plant, in some parts of the day, um, a gigawatt will be running through that transmission line. But uh, not always. Yeah. And so to keep consistent power, you're going to have to have... Uh, the other power plants ramp up and down to match the solar. So you're forcing variability of operations on all the power plants also connected to that transmission line. Yeah, um, which takes away your predictability of just when, what will be needed and, and how to, uh, you know, account for the, the certain demands. Right. And so to soften that variability, um, energy storage can be used to dampen the effects of that variability and allow you for better planning. And that will take out some of the cost of that operational complexity. However, if you were just to limit the amount of variability by building baseload energy sources, such as geothermal, you could avoid a lot of those costs. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a huge benefit that geothermal has um, that wind and solar do not. 
Okay, so let's look at the other base load energy sources. You have hydro, you have fission, you have fusion. Um, so hydropower, uh, nuclear energy, which is fission, and then you have fusion, which doesn't exist yet. Um, hydropower is an amazing source of energy. Um, I am a proponent of hydropower. However, it has um, large land use, and yeah. it, it's pretty adverse, pretty adverse environmental effects. Um, not on emissions, but on ecological systems. Yeah. So while that source of energy is great, you have these complications. Um, the only uh, emissions-free renewable energy sources that are base load or dispatchable, and that also have small land use with low, low adverse environmental impacts, are geothermal, fission, and fusion. Okay, those are kind of like your options. Maybe there might be some other options there, but those are the big ones. Yeah. Just today. So this is my point. And I think (laughs) what the public needs to realize is um, geothermal can be scaled up. And if we pursue these hotter temperatures, it can be scaled up in an affordable way. Um, Up to this point, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, have been <laughs> allocated towards the advancement of these high-temperature geothermal systems. And there has, you know, there have been billions of dollars spent on developing high-temperature geothermal systems around the world. And these are conventional steam resources. But the amount of research dollars spent on geothermal has been fairly low. Uh, with the new energy bill, there is actually more funds being allocated towards geothermal. Um, however, I would point to the fact that nuclear energy and fusion energy, in particular, have received hundreds of billions of dollars of research. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. Um, And the challenges, the technical challenges that they need to overcome, I believe are much smaller than what we have to overcome in the geothermal industry. Yeah. Right. The drilling side of things, at least initially, these are are doable problems. Um, The power on the power side... It's largely figured out. Even on the well completion side, even though it is challenging, these are not um, insurmountable technical challenges. Yeah. And while the reservoir side is complicated, I don't know if it's as complicated as creating um, giant magnets to contain a fusion reaction. So, yeah. <laughs> and then when you look at the outcomes, so what are the outcomes that we are looking for? We're looking for base load energy resource was. Um, little to no emissions, and um, low environmental impact. Geothermal has all those characteristics, but the set of technical challenges is much smaller, and it can be scaled in in a similar way um, once you overcome the drilling challenges. Um, And and people like Quays are working on that. So if we're able to drill deeply uh, for lower cost, then we can build these systems everywhere, for example. Yeah. So when yeah, you look at it in those terms, it doesn't, it seems like a worthwhile investment. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Right. If we, if we were to spend hundreds of billions of dollars, like we have in fusion pursuing this, uh, we could do it pretty quickly. It, yeah. I mean, it brings point. the, it brings the timeline up dramatically if you, yeah, if exactly. you put in that kind of money. Um, yeah, which no, I, that's a great answer. I, I think that's, yeah, I think it's just about framing it correctly and and showing 
you know, the public, but also the investment community more and more that, you know, Hey, I'm, there's a lot of money out there in the, the other EGS now, I'm not talking about enhanced geothermal systems, but there's a lot of, you know, firms and investment money that's out there. And, and even some of it that they don't know where to put it, or they just aren't sure. And, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, there's both the research side, but then also just investment that needs to be made in the companies that are trying to research and solve these problems. Um, because I think once you get over that hurdle, um, I, I mean, I don't see anything else that's stopping you from taking that, that model, even like what you are doing at Newberry and other fields and just literally going anywhere, like you said, and it, and it can really help erase the energy poverty in certain areas or just help level out the grid in, in certain spots. So I think that's awesome. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm excited and I hope that through this, we can engage the, the public and, you know, other communities to really start kind of believing more in geothermal as a actual main player in the energy community. Um, and so I, you know, lastly want to kind of go to what we briefly touched on at the beginning and want to hear some of your experience and also just the inputs and main control factors and, and things that are going into, you know, the economic models that we're building in the geothermal space. Um, just from, you know, I'm coming from the background of, you know, oil and gas. And so I've seen some of these things run with when you're installing a, a massive new CO2 flood and you're accounting for all the facilities and all these things and then maintenance of the field, regular things. So I've seen it from that view, but I, I, I would love to hear just what, what all goes into these techo, techno, techno economic models that you're uh, building for geothermal uh, fields or reservoirs. Yeah, no, great. So um, typically the way we set up these models is um, we have the well field and then we have the power plant. So the, the initial capital cost for the well field and the initial capital cost for uh, the power plant. Um, in most cases, when you're looking at the well field, you're looking at equity investments. So you need to get some cash up front uh, from an investor. However, by the time you have proven out your resource and developed your well field, um, you can finance the power plant with debt. Mm, right? Okay. Yeah. So if you have, let's, for example, if you have a PPA with a utility as an uh, independent power producer. Okay. Actually, let me back up here because I, I, this is an important distinction to make uh, between geothermal and the oil and gas industry. Um, the geothermal industry sells electricity, and I, I know that that's obvious, but it does have some implications here. So in oil and gas, for example, you can produce your oil, you can sell it to someone who's storing it somewhere, you can put it through a pipeline. Uh, you have a lot of options yeah. to sell it. It's a fungible commodity. And, you know, in theory, you know, electricity is a fungible commodity as well. However, you most likely have to sell it to your local utility who owns all the transmission in the area. Um, or you have to pay some kind of fee to them and sell it to, let's say, a municipality or something along those lines. However, you're going you're gonna to be unable to circumvent the utility. Um, and, and not only that, but you're not just competing, right? Um, you're competing with all the other energy production. So you're competing with natural gas, you're competing with wind and solar, you're competing with all these different resources. 
Yeah. It's a more challenging environment as far as selling your power into the market. Um, how it's typically done because of this issue is that uh, geothermal um, power plants pursue PPAs, which are power purchase agreements. Basically, uh, an entity, either utility, municipality, or some kind of uh, co-op, electricity co-op, will contract with your power plant to uh, offtake all all your power at a specific price. Um, And that price may have an escalator on it. Um, It may have some seasonality to it. There there might be, and there's conditions um, with with that contract. And so you, you get a PPA with, Uh, one of these entities, um, and they basically say, if you meet the initial terms of the contract, if you um, have a well filled and it's validated by a third party and you get the financing for the power plant, you you know, build a power plant, do all this stuff, we agree to buy your power. So you basically get a commitment. Um, Once you have a well filled in place and you have that commitment, um, getting financing for the power plant is not too much of a problem. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that it's, it's, there's no challenges there, but it's not too big of a deal. So that that's essentially kind of how this all works. Is um, so uh, you basically you have wildcatters, uh, so they do the initial exploration, uh, so all the geophysics, and then maybe uh, one or more wells uh, to validate the resource. Um, you then do a, a round of fundraising to basically fill out the rest of the well field and uh, get your power purchase agreement. Go out to okay. utilities and find a client. Uh, once you have that in place, yeah, then you get financing. So that's just the basic roadmap. Um, on the technical techno-economic model here, what you have to do, and this is, I mean, this is the difficult part, is from the initial expiration, um, information that you have, you have to come up with a credible um, resource evaluation. So this basically means how many wells are going to be in your reservoir, how much water are you cycling through your reservoir, and how much heat are you going to take out? And then what kind of power plant are you using to turn that heat into electricity? And the variables here are um, cost. So what are the costs of this power plant? What's the enthalpy of your water? Uh, So on and so forth. Uh, generally speaking, if you have lower temperature water, so let's say under 175C or 160C or thereabouts, you're going to have to use binary turbines. Um, that's because you're not going to be able to get enough steam to make um, steam turbines worthwhile. Um, binary turbines are, generally speaking, more expensive than steam turbines. Oh, interesting. Um, right. And... For, for uh, capacity, on an installed capacity basis, they're more expensive. They are also less efficient. So right there, you kind of run into trouble. Um, so companies like Ormat, which are binary, a binary turbine manufacturer who then became a geothermal developer, uh, they are able to succeed because they, you know, they can build these things at cost and... Um, I'll compete a lot of people that way. Um, however, it's it's hard to push the cost down with binary turbines alone. There are some limits there. 
when you get into steam turbines, they, you know, it's much easier to push the cost down because um, steam turbines, like I said earlier, are easier to, are cheaper to build um, and they're more efficient. So, and they're also just smaller in size. So the, one of the things to think about here um, is just the steel involved. I mean, it's, <laughs> it seems simple, but it's actually, it's a pretty good metric. So in a binary turbine, you need heat exchangers. What happens is you're flowing pressurized hot water through a refrigerant to create a vapor of the refrigerant that will go into the turbine. Yeah. That, and in order to be economic, you need really high flow rates. Um, I don't know what <laughs> I'm trying to think of. Uh, let's see, gallons. What, what do you? What metric do you normally use for flow? So let's. Uh, uh, well, I mean, it depends. I mean, yeah, oil and gas is barrels per day. You know, barrels. Barrels. I mean, okay. There's, well, there's uh, gallons or liters. I mean, there's there's you know I'll, whatever. I'll, I'll go with gallons use. here. I'll go with gallons. Okay. Um, like, so for one of the power plants I've worked on in the past, let's say, you basically you have ten thousand gallons per minute flowing through. The okay, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, um, it's a lot. It's a lot. So these heat exchangers are large. That's the point I'm making here. Um, and the piping connecting all these wells are large. So that just the steel involved is expensive. And then all the engineering of that steel is expensive. As you go into steam turbines, you need a lot less flow to get the same amount of power output. So um, while the metallurgies may be more complex, let's say, than uh, what's used in a binary turbine, oftentimes the um, the amount of steel and engineering needed is less um, because you're using less wells, they're closer together, um, and all, all these different kinds of things. So. That is the first thing to understand about geothermal is you can get significant gains by going hot enough to use a steam turbine. Um, then uh, the second thing is scale. So it's really important, but it's, a, I think, a missed fact here um, that one of the main drivers of cost is the scale of the power plant. Right, it's just economies of scale. Like for each unit of steel that you're doing, for a however inch, you know, inch radius of your turbine you increase, or well, that's not necessarily a good example because that not all turbines work that way. But um, for every amount of steel that you're using, how much energy production are you getting out of your system? And the larger your power plant, basically, the more power you can produce per materials used. So. And then the, the less operations cost, right? So a power plant that has 10 megawatts um, has a similar labor need as a power plant with 30 megawatts of production. So there's okay. all these there's all these things uh, that add up together and means that scale is very important. So um, below 30 megawatts, power plants are pretty expensive uh, for geothermal. Once you get to 30 megawatts or above, um, you see... Uh, a good drop off in cost there. Uh, but that relationship continues and you can see significant cost reduction. So between 30 megawatts, let's say, and 200 megawatts, you, you will see a half, you, the cost will be cut in half for the power plant or more. Wow. Okay. Um, so just 
scale alone can greatly reduce your cost. Um, now, going back to that binary system, these lower enthalpy units, um, it's harder to scale because the amount of energy produced per well is relatively small. So let's say on the order of 4 to 10 megawatts, thereabouts. You don't really go above 10 megawatts, but let's say like 4 to 10 megawatts. Um, with steam wells, right, you can get up to 20, 30 megawatts. And that's kind of what we're talking about with SHR. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but you need a larger reservoir surface area. So the surface area in your reservoir has to be larger to handle that flow rate. So um, to push it much past 30 megawatts, you have to send pipelines far away from the power plant. And at some point, that doesn't become efficient. So uh, these binary turbines kind of have a cap on capacity. I'm not exactly sure what the cap is. I, it, my intuition is it's somewhere between 50 to 100 megawatts. Okay. You probably can't go above just because of these technical constraints. Um, and, yeah, and you don't, and to put it in perspective, you don't really see binary turbines over 50 megawatts really anywhere. Um, so that's one thing to think about. Um, when you look at steam turbines or like, let's say SHR, you're able to get um, to much higher capacity. So probably on the order of 200 megawatts is achievable oh, okay. with those systems. So you can drive the cost down considerably just that way. Um, and then on top of that, so when you look at the well field, it's the same kind of thing. What is the marginal cost of drilling? And then we were talking about this earlier. Um, how much power are you producing per materials used in your well? So, right, if, if you're producing five or six megawatts um, from your binary turbine, um, and then you're, let's say you're, cost $10 million, or it probably wouldn't cost that much, but, you know, let's say $10 million or less or something like that. Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, and then you compare that with, like, an SHR well that maybe is double that. So it's $20, 25000000 million. The SH, SHR well will likely produce five times or more the amount of power yeah. than that system. So just the marginal cost on a materials basis for that well is going to most likely be lower, more than more than half. Yeah, and for the well field, you, you'll be having probably less wells also, right? I mean, I think you mentioned that. Then maybe yeah, you have yeah. to. Yeah, so you less wells, or you could use the same amount of wells and produce far more power. Yeah. Right, that's kind of the idea here. Um, so you can achieve great leaps in cost reduction by those two drivers alone. Just scaling and then the marginal cost of your well field production. So both of them go down. The power plant side goes down because of two reasons. One, you're using a steam turbine, and then two, or a steam turbine or supercritical turbine, we're not exactly sure which one to use just yet. But the cost reduction is uh, a, a difference in technology, but it's also um, an increase in the capacity you're able to build uh, for the power plant. On the well field side, because you're producing more power per well, um, the marginal cost of your well field, so kilowatts produced, or kilowatt capacity per uh, capital put in the well field is lower than um, these lower enthalpy systems. 
and, th- and that's just kind of the basic way to think about it. And, and when you look at it, uh, so for these lower enthalpy systems, you have to move a lot of fluid. Like I said, one of the yeah. products I worked on t- 10,000 gallons per minute, um, and it's pressurized water. The only way you get those flows uh, and pressurized water is you're using pumps. Yeah, you have to use pumps to you get that. You have to that. use pumps. Yeah. So you have large parasitic loads Yeah, as well. Um, so when you factor all this stuff in, on these lower enthalpy systems, you're going to need to produce huge amounts of thermal energy because your efficiency is lower. So your efficiency is also 10% or thereabouts, plus or minus. Yeah. Um, so, so even even with twenty wells producing five megawatts, you know, you're it's it, compared to your super hot rock with twenty wells, you know, producing twenty five megawatts. Whole per well. different that's a story. Hu- that's a huge difference, and then uh, not to mention the the you know ten percent versus twenty five percent efficiency. I mean, that's huge. Right. I mean, so the game in the simplified version of this, because in a technical economic model, you do need to do some modeling, and so you basically look at your resource, you look at what you think the reservoir will look like, and then you do reservoir modeling, um, and you do the you do scenario analysis, and you look at the outputs of those reservoirs, and you look at the cost of each scenario, and then you plug that into uh, an optimized power plant for each scenario, and then you get your different iterations of development. So that's, I mean, that's generally how this works. Um, and so for SHR, basically, you're looking drilling a well, um, creating your reservoir, how do you cycle that water through, how much energy you can pull out, and then based off the inlet conditions to the power plant, so the, uh, the steam or supercritical water or whatever uh, phase of fluid you're producing um, going into the turbine, you can optimize a power plant, so a specific technology to meet that inlet condition. Um, and then once you have all that information, you can cost it out. So you know how many wells you have, uh, you know what depth you need to drill to, uh, you know the kind of stimulation you're doing, um, and then you know what p- kind of power plant you need. And then it's just a matter of costing that out. And a lot of those costs are known. So on the power plant side, we can get a fairly accurate representation of what those costs will be because this technology exists. On yeah. the drilling side, these costs are fairly well known because we've drilled to these conditions already. Um, and then in the cases uh, where it's deep, we have some insight because oil and gas has drilled, you know, down to 10 kilometers. So it's not as if um, these deeper wells have not been done. So there is ways of assessing cost of drilling. And um, we do that uh, in our models. Um, What is less known is the stimulation side. Um, And that is something that we, you know, do based off our own knowledge. So that that is more in-house knowledge uh, of the cost of stimulation but we have ways of assessing what that might be. Um, and, um, but we do, I mean, we can look at the oil and gas to assess what those costs look like in a theoretical sense, because basically yeah. the idea is uh, this, if we get to an nth of a kind, and that means that these things are being mass manufactured, let's say um, high temperature packers or, diverters or other materials that we would need are mass manufactured. We can use um, oil and gas currently as an analog for what those cost reductions might look like and project what the cost will be. So, yeah, we, and I mean, only get better in time, right? You know, as, as, you know, I think 
as we get better at this and things become more efficient, you know, the cost can even be driven down further, just like oil and gas has done the last five to seven years. Right. Right. Exactly. So, and that, that's, uh, that's called a learning curve. So the, uh, the analysis of that is, um, as you learn more, right, that your costs go down. Um, yeah. And there's the, the technical learning, there's, there's different types of learning curves, but these are well-developed models. Um, you can actually project how the cost will decrease with time based off of um, what you're looking at. And so we, we use those models um, to determine what future costs may be. And, and, that, and that's how we kind of assess the cost of stimulation and also drilling. Um, so looking at that too. Um, yeah. But So basically, you take all those components together and you develop... Um, marginal costs, and that's LCOE. So we look at LCOE, levelized cost of electricity, um, for for the power plant. Um, and LC, I'll make a mention here. Um, P, LCOE is a contentious metric by which to measure yeah. economic <laughs> viability. Well, I do think it's important. And there's a just need to say that the reason why LCOE is used in renewable energy is because there are no fuel costs, right? Yeah. Um, that's the important distinction is that in geothermal or wind or solar, what you're doing is you're buying a future contract for all the fuel you will ever use. That's the way to think about it. Yeah. Um, and so you need to incorporate that into the cost because if you're going to compare it with, let's say, a gas turbine, you can't compare it on installed costs because the gas turbine does not include a contract for all the power it will purchase over the lifetime of the power plant. Mm, yeah. Um, so when you're comparing comparing just simply in terms of installed capacity, um, it will not be accurate. So that's why people use the LCOE and other kinds of metrics like LCOE uh, to do comparisons. Right? And that's why they present it that way. It's, it's just to yeah. capture the fact that you're buying all your fuel up front. Yeah, you're basically paying for a lifetime of that field or that inner that energy source in terms of geothermal or solar or wind. Right, exactly. So we we calculate an LCOE because it's just it's a standard, um, and I think it gets the point across. And it's a it's a more accurate comparison than installed capacity. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, and and then we basically use that and that we use that uh, the LCOE cost as our wholesale price. So okay. Uh, what we're going to sell as a PPA or what we're going to sell into the market. Um, and, and that's basically how the technical analysis goes. And we talked about some of the driving factors here. Uh, I guess there's one more thing. Um, let's see. Sorry, I, I lost track here. Um, let's see. Okay. S sorry about this, guys. Um, no, no worries. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, that, that's basically how it works. So you you have um, your LCOE, you compare it, and then you uh, basically have a third party corroborate your predictions, and then you okay. go out and you find you know contracts to go. Yeah, someone to take on. that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what I I've been doing a lot of work on SHR right now, so looking at the technologies that we're using, talking to potential partners. Um, hunting down costs. And so we are developing technical techno-economic models for SHR. And initial analysis shows that we can get below five cents a kilowatt hour. We can probably get 
as low as um, two cents a kilowatt hour. Um, once wow, that's great. If you if we are to believe these learning curve um, analysis, so yeah, applying the learning curve um, to these different technical components, we believe we can get down to around two cents a kilowatt hour, uh, and the large cost reductions that we see compared to what uh, other geothermal systems do is uh, what the, is because of the factors we just talked about, which are yeah, scale and power produced per well. I, I mean, that's the main thing. Um, yeah. Oh, and, and there's one more note. So sorry, this is a little muddled, everyone. But um, I want one last thing I want to impart on everyone in the geothermal world is um, or people entering into the geothermal world is that when you're assessing a project, it's it's actually conceptually fairly simple um, uh, how you want to assess whether something is viable, viable or not. And geothermal at the end of the, of the day is just a larger radiator, right? You're, uh, you're sucking heat out of rock um, through a basically plumbing system, a uh, heat exchanger. You're creating a heat exchanger at depth. So the principles that govern heat exchangers will work in geothermal as well. Um, and what you can glean from that is that power production is a function of the surface area of your reservoir and the temperature of your rock. Those are the two controlling factors. And how much energy you produce from that is how much flow you're putting through the system. Right? So yeah. that's, that's the simple terms. Now on the uh, the top end, your efficiency is a function of the temperature of your steam or water, and then what phase the water is in, whether it's mm, you know, okay. water or supercritical. So those are kind of the three, or I guess four main factors. What is the surface area of your res- reservoir? What is the temperature? Um, what is the flow going through the system? And then what are the inlet conditions, which will give you your efficiency? So anyone who wants to model this, um, without my help, I guess, you can start <laughs> at, at that point. So start with those four principles and work your way up from there. And you, you can start to see whether um, a project is viable or what technologies are viable. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think when I first started looking into that, it's not much different from you know, when I'm thinking from a geologist perspective of doing oil in place calculations or just general, you know, reservoir evaluation and scoping, it's, it, it does have similarities. Obviously we're talking different measurements and, and we're talking heat instead of, you know, an actual resource, but, or like, you know, something physical, but your, your beginning measurements aren't, aren't too different, um, which I thought was, was interesting. I mean, and then the surface side is, is new, but that's, that's all great info and, and, I know for myself and I hope all of you listening have learned a ton today from Matt and have appreciated all of the insight and knowledge that he's imparted on us and, and really just excited to see the work that Alterock is doing and excited to follow along with them. And so for all of you out there, if you would like to follow along too, I'll, I'll post links to their company uh, in the show notes as well as to Matt's profile. And, and I'll also will tag in that MIT study for those that are interested in having some some late night reading uh it's a it is long but it's a good is a in my opinion uh, as matt mentioned it's a great sort of intro or just good overall 
you know, summary of, of geothermal as an energy source and how we, we access more of it than we, we are now. So um, I want to thank you again, Matt, for coming on and, and appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, uh, it's been fun for me. So. Awesome. Well, we, I'm sure we'll be touching base soon. And, and for all of you listeners, I'll see you next time on the next episode. Thank you, guys. Thank you.